This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. The baby business is booming in the U.S., but because the fertility industry is largely unregulated, no one knows exactly how many children have been conceived by an egg or sperm donor. And now that at-home DNA kits from 23andMe and Ancestry.com are becoming more popular, some people are finding surprising truths about their family history. I just remember feeling like I had all of the air sucked out of my body. And I called my husband, and I was crying so hard I couldn't even talk. He thought I had got in a car accident. And he just kept yelling, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I said, my father's not my father. That's Amber Van Mosner sharing her story in a new podcast from Sony called Biohacked Family Secrets. She joins us now to tell us more about it. Hi, Amber. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Also with us is TJ Raphael, who hosts the series. Hi, TJ. Hi. Great to be here. Amber, I'll start with you because the, the podcast begins with your story. And we, we just heard a bit of what it was like for you to learn the truth about your family origins a lot of raw emotions there. So talk to us. What was going on in yeah, that moment? I, I just got a little choked up listening to it again. Me too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I did a 23andMe recreationally with my husband. I was hoping to learn a little bit more about my mom's parents who had passed away pretty young um, and understand more about that side of the family. And I got the surprise of a lifetime when, you know, the first red flag was my ethnicity did not match what I had been told my entire life was my ethnicity. My parents downplayed that. And then uh, about a year later, I connected with my half-sister, and she reached out and said, hey, I'm donor-conceived. Are, are you donor-conceived? You know, I've been looking for you. And that one message basically turned my entire world upside down. Hmm. Um, my parents eventually came clean and admitted that, they had used a sperm donor to conceive me, and they were told by their doctor to never tell anyone, and they truly believed I would never find out. Wow. And, and after taking the DNA test, of course, you, as you mentioned, you connected with your half-sibling, Caitlin. You, you both wanted to find your biological father together. So I want to play a little bit of uh, you three talking about meeting for the first time in Chicago. Let's listen. To meet him in person and interact with him, in a weird way, it's like I'd known them all their lives. I mean, it's like we became instant, like, best friends. And then, you know, we were just laughing like old friends. It, it, it was just really fun. There was just this automatic easiness. I felt like I had known both of them my entire life. What was it like to meet him? It was absolutely surreal. And um, to add some additional context, you know, I'd been talking with my half-sister. Uh, before I met my half-sister and my biological father, we had all FaceTimed. So I had I had kind of seen them before, but we all met in person, um, and I met Caitlin 90 minutes before I met Kurt. So it was really just you know, wow, uh, a really kind of a breakneck, you know, diving in headfirst situation. But it was like looking in a funhouse mirror. I remember there was one point at dinner where I was just looking at Caitlin and looking at Kurt and looking at Caitlin and looking at Kurt, and it, it's hard to explain, and it's something that um, I've also heard from people in the adoptee community who find their biological family, but. You know, when you were raised looking at yourself in the mirror your whole life and not knowing what that other piece is, and then you see it for the first time, 
it's it's absolutely mind blowing. And I've I've had this similar experience as I've met more and more of my half siblings. Um, How many we've discovered? Ten, there's ten of us in total that we've discovered. Ten. But to our knowledge, yeah, to our knowledge, there's seventy five to one hundred of us out there. Um, wow. And of the ten that I've yeah, um, and of the ten that I've met, many of us grew up in the same area. One of my half brothers lived on the same street as me at one point. So, you know, you can see the complications that can arise when people are not told their identity. You know, there's there's nothing from stopping a timeline where me and one of my half brothers were dating in high school. Oh my goodness. So you potentially have 75 brothers and sisters out there somewhere. That's correct. Or more. Or more. TJ, I think it's time to bring you in here. You and Amber, yeah. um, the two of you are, are, are friends from college. I want to know your reaction when she first shared this news with you. Yeah, when I first heard Amber's story, I was shocked. I didn't know anyone who was donor conceived. And when Amber shared the details about her struggle to find her donor, I was even more baffled. Uh, the clinic where she was conceived, it, it no longer exists, and it closed down, you know, I think two decades, right, Amber, before you made this discovery. And I, I as a journalist, was trying to fact-check this story and, and run this lead down. And then that's when I found out that if a clinic closes, there's no law in the United States that says those records need to be maintained in any way for donor-conceived people to access in the future, or even a recipient parent. If you have a child and your clinic closes down when your kid is, you know, 10, 15, or 18 or older, or, you know, 30 years old, like Amber, when she found out and they want to get more information, whether that's health information or just information about the donor, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're just kind of out of luck. Um, I was able to eventually go through old newspapers to fa- track down um, the woman who was running the clinic, and she remembered Kurt, um, but it was operated through the University of Albany, and I even went to the archivist at the U, Al- uh, at U Albany in New York. And she didn't even have any records. So it was really hmm. <laughs> like kind of a state secret um, until I was able to find that one lead of this woman who had worked at the clinic and um, was working in reproductive technology in the yeah. Albany area for decades after that. Sounds like the makings of a good podcast for sure. And, and yeah. <laughs> I, I want to be clear, TJ, you're, you're dealing with uh, the baby business and, and the commerce of conception. So we're clear. Talk to us about what exactly that entails. Yeah, I mean, the baby business is huge. Private sperm and egg banks uh, break in millions of dollars every year. Last year alone, the global fertility industry itself was estimated to be worth nearly $19 billion. And Wall Street and venture capital firms are taking notice, too. Investors dumped more than $624 million into the fertility space in 2019. Um, What's behind this? You know, I I think it's a number of different factors Um, in our society. People are waiting longer to have children. Mm -hmm. And when you wait longer to have children, that at some times your fertility can decline and it's really difficult to have children. So people need assistance. Um, Also, the number of queer families starting their families with assisted reproductive technology is also increasing, as well as the number of single women choosing to become parents by themselves. So that's one factor that's driving it. And then there's also the desire to preserve fertility. Egg freezing is becoming increasingly popular, and there are also sperm freezing services. I live in New York, and I've seen ads for it on the subway. So 
I think that um, Wall Street and and investors are taking notice that this is a growing space uh, to be able to make money on. Um, And also, when someone is desperate to have a child, um, if they have the means, they will pay money to have that baby. They will mortgage their house. They will take loans from family and friends. Um, So that's really what drives the business overall. They'll do whatever it takes. And the industry is largely unregulated. What did you find out about that? Yeah, this was shocking to me as I was digging into Amber's story. It was really interesting to me because Amber um, really and, and those in her age group to me, are representative of the first real big wave of people conceived with this technology. In the 80s, there was a real baby boom as it relates to donor conception, and there weren't really many rules then. And as I found in my reporting, there still aren't many rules. Um, Harvard Business School professor Deborah Spar famously told the New York Times a few years ago, we have more rules that go into place when you buy a used car than when you buy sperm. Right. Um, and I think it's the only thing the FDA legally requires donors to be screened for are communicable diseases, things like HIV and STDs, something that might affect the recipient, um, you know, a person who's receiving this genetic material, putting it into their body. Um, the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, which is the largest industry group in this space, they do have suggested guidelines mm-hmm. for things like genetic screenings, background checks, psychological evaluations, but those are all voluntary guidelines. Um, You know, there are some good clinics that do follow those guidelines, but it's actually impossible to tell how many clinics in the U.S. actually do because there's no national oversight body. Um, You know, in countries like the United Kingdom, Australia, New Zealand, most of Scandinavia, those countries have taken steps years ago to more closely regulate the baby business by, you know, limiting the number of children one donor can produce, uh, by imposing mandatory donor screening, mm-hmm. removing anonymity, so things like that. But in the United States, we don't even have any idea how, how many people are born through uh, donors every year, and we have no clue how many donors there are because there's no national system in place. Right, until... These uh, 23andMe uh, tests became popular. How accurate are they, TJ? I'm curious. Yeah, they're they're pretty accurate. I know with Amber, they were able to show that what you and Caitlin shared a quarter of your DNA, which I think the test also indicates like that could um, be potentially a, a different kind of relative. I spoke with one woman who we're going to be airing her episode in two weeks. She matched with someone and it said, this could be my sister when they were actually grandmother and granddaughter. Oh, wow. Um, so the, the percentages are very accurate as it relates to being able to identify a biological match. Um, I've done 23 myself. I started, I, I did it when I, um, started working on this project and thankfully no surprises, not yet at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my, my genetic ancestry uh, matched up to what I had been what told. What you had told, you've been told. Very accurately, yeah. Amber, are you surprised by any of this? You know, when TJ talks about uh, the, the industry being unregulated and, you know, no law requiring donors to go through screenings? Yeah, I, when I learned all of this, I was absolutely shocked as, you know, part of the process when I learned I was donor conceived, I wanted to learn more about the industry. I wanted to learn more about, you know, how this had happened. And the more I learned, the more I was absolutely flabbergasted by what goes on in the industry. You know, I heard a story today um, about a woman who was donor conceived who not only was her mom's doctor, her biological father, 
Um, but she has continued to, she saw this doctor as an adult woman, not knowing he was her biological father. And he consistently switched her appointment so that she could only see him in the practice. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Like, if that doesn't make your skin crawl, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what does. Skin so, you currently know, a lot crawling. Of people, when I tell them, you know, it's it's absolutely not illegal for a doctor to use their own genetic material or someone else's and swap it out for what they said it would be on a patient. In most states, that is not illegal. Wow. And people are shocked by that. And the only reason that there are being laws put on the books about this is because donor-conceived people are coming forward, they're sharing their stories, and they're trying to make these changes because the FDA has completely left us behind. This is fascinating stuff. TJ, you um, you also talked to academics, uh, clinic workers, doctors. I, I want to play a little bit of your conversation with Jerome Sherman. That's the scientist who invented the technique for freezing sperm and other human cells. The opposition, which I was most taken aback by, was religious. There was immediate concern that this was... Uh, not a uh, proper thing to do. Briefly tell us, uh, TJ, how his research lays the groundwork for, for this global baby business that we know today. You there, TJ? Amber, are you still with me? Yeah, I'm still there. So, I mean, as, as someone who worked with TJ on the podcast, I can say, you know, his his research and his work was the foundation for the entire industry. Yeah. All sperm is now frozen because of um, specifically because of the HIV crisis in the late 80s. Um, the industry that is the only time the industry self-regulated, and it was under threat of, uh, I believe, then Senator Al Gore. Um, but that is the only time the industry self-regulated because there were multiple women and children contracting HIV from sperm donors. Mm. So now all sperm is frozen while sperm donors wait out a testing period for STDs. Um, but beyond that, there's no um, required extensive DNA testing for um, inherited, you know, um, genetic diseases or conditions. Yeah. There's no extensive background checks, criminal background checks, um, and there's no uh, extensive psychological testing. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of really tragic cases of, you know, people having children that have serious, serious issues, lifelong issues um, that they hadn't bargained for. Well, we've got just a little bit of time left, Amber. I want you to quickly talk about your efforts here, because you and others within this donor-conceived community, you're, you're pushing for change, right? Yeah, so yeah. So uh, uh, a couple years ago, Nick Eisel, whose story is featured in the podcast as well, petitioned the FDA and said, hey, you know, we've found all of these issues in the industry do you think you should maybe do something about this? And, and the petition had over 400 comments of support and the FDA denied the petition. And they said, ultimately, their only concern is the health of the patient. And in this case, the patient is the recipient parent who receives the egg and or um, donor sperm. And therefore, they are not responsible for the child that is the product of that donation. Uh, so mm -hmm. they denied the petition. So now I am part of... Uh, a lawsuit with Nick and some other donor-conceived activists against the FDA to get them to reconsider their stance on the petition. But that's a slow, slow-moving process. Um, there's also a bill in the New York State legislature right now to make fertility fraud illegal, and that would that would outlaw the practice of a, um, a doctor using their own sperm or using uh, 
unsanctioned or unspecified genetic material on a patient without their consent. Yeah. Uh, again, shocking that that is not illegal in New York State, but that's what we're trying to change. Yeah, I feel uh, like nothing shocks me anymore, Amber. <laughs> <laughs> nothing shocks me anymore. Yeah, I mean, the whole the whole point of the podcast, I mean, it's not fun for me to trot out my trauma and my story over and over again. But if it can get people's attention and if it can change the minds yeah. um, about how this industry is operated and also if it can help other donor-conceived people feel seen and heard and connected, uh, that's that's ultimately the goal. Yeah. Just 30 seconds here, TJ. You've got a new episode of the podcast dropping tomorrow. Give us a quick preview of what we're going to hear. Yeah, so that conversation is with Nick Isell, who Amber just mentioned. He actually lives in Illinois. Um, he was conceived through the infamous repository for germinal choice in the 1980s. It was a sperm bank that claimed to hold the genetic material of Nobel Prize winners, of geniuses. But it turns out the screening wasn't all there. And we go into Nick's personal story and how he learned the truth about his biological father, um, who probably should not have been qualified to donate to a genius sperm bank or potentially any sperm bank at all. Um, So it's a shocking story. And Nick, as uh, Amber mentioned, is leading this lawsuit. uh, And so we'll hear more from him later in the season as well. We've been speaking with Amber Van Mosner and journalist TJ Raphael. She hosts a new podcast from Sony called Biohacked Family Secrets. There's a new episode dropping tomorrow. TJ and Amber, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.